Good afternoon, Nantucket. I am Camille Broderick, and this is Camille's Demi Hour. Today, we are speaking with second-generation vintner Anna Maria Ponzi. She is the president of her family's winery in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and her sister is the winemaker. Together, they have been running the business for the past 25 years. Her parents moved to the area in the 60s and had vision beyond others for that region and what was ahead. Today, they are one of the most well-known names in the area and advocates for the wine growers of Oregon. Let's welcome Anna Maria Ponzi. Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. This is a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. You will hear from those voices who've helped create and represent this fascinating place. And lastly, we hope to educate on wine, healthy cooking, and the agricultural and sustainable community here on island. Good afternoon. Thanks again for listening. This is Camille Broderick, host of Camille's Demi Hour. And today we are very lucky to speak to possibly one of the only sister-owned wineries in the United States, Anna Maria Ponzi, along with her sister. Welcome, Maria. It's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be a part of it. Thank you for thinking of us. So you grew up on the winery and on the farm. Why don't you talk about those experiences and some of the most memorable moments in your youth? Yeah, well, so, you know, back in those days, and this is taking us back to about 1970, I was a pretty young girl. I was only about four years old. So the memories are all of working on a farm, pretty much. It was nothing, there was nothing glamorous about it. Myself and my little sister and my older brother were pretty much the first vineyard crew, and we were the first cellar crew. And, you know, I sold wines when I was probably 12 years old in our little tasting room, which is basically our garage. So, it was um, not what it is today, to be sure. Uh, the Willamette Valley was completely unknown at that time. Um, in fact, my folks were some of the very first to come up to the, the northern parts of, of the Willamette Valley to try their hands at planting Pinot Noir. And at that time, you know, there were only a, a couple other families that were actually situated on the other side of the, the valley, on the other side of the hill from us, uh, David Letton and uh, Dick Erath, who had actually started... Uh, just a couple of years before us, we did a, a lot of, of um, really setting the foundation. I, we planted in um, the first vineyard and learned how to how to prune and how to tie down vines, and then it was fun, but a lot of work. <laughs> so your parents have a great background, though. How did they have the vision to go to Oregon? Where did they have the foresight to know that well, that was the region? Yeah, and I think you know I look back to it now, and I think a lot of it was just they wanted to have a great adventure. You know, my folks are, are always looking for um, what's next, what's new. When we were living in, in uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, my folks were purchasing French wines, so Burgundy, Chablis, and they developed this real love for Pinot Noir. At that time in Napa Valley, you know, it was early in those days when uh, those vintners were just beginning to explore quality winemaking. But my folks um, felt that, to make really great wines, we needed to mimic the wines from the old world, from Burgundy. They took us as, at a very young age. We went and traveled back to Burgundy as, as little kids, and my folks were asking lots of questions and, uh, you know, taking lots of notes and, and, and observing how the, how, the, how the plants were being grown and um, trellis systems and, and then speaking to some of these really great um, producers and and then they came home and realized that this wasn't going to happen in California the climate was wrong 
next. So it was really just that very simple basis that, that they felt the climate was incorrect in California and, they, and then we needed to go farther north. So we ended up in the Willamette Valley after actually traveling through many parts of California. But the Willamette Valley just felt right. They looked around and saw these amazing um, crops that were being grown, berries and apples and pears, and they thought, you know, if nothing else, something, you know, it, it will grow here. And really, honestly, the only book that I remember that, you know, lived on my parents' bedside table was this tiny little paperback book that was like a home winemaker's guide. And, and it was probably, you know, all of 50 pages. And that was sort of their guide, uh, along with um, looking outside their windows and, and observing what the other farmers were doing during the season and saying, oh, I, I guess we get a, better find a disc. I wonder what a disc looks like and what, how do we put that on the back of this tractor? And <laughs> Oh, it looks like they're pruning. Maybe we should figure out how to prune. So it, it, was, it was truly all about Let's give this a go. What a testament to what you can what you can accomplish. <laughs> well, as my mother always said, she said, um, you know, we felt like we could do anything because we we were intelligent and we could read, and <laughs> and we were naive enough to ask a lot of questions. So it was a lovely, you know, uh, mid sixties to mid seventies. I think that period in time has a lot to do with the success. A state of freedom and opportunity yeah. and. Fast forward, so now at the time where your parents started and launched their winery in 1970, how many other wineries were there and what are there today, roughly? Yeah, oh my goodness. Well, like I said, David Lett um, from Irie had established uh, a few years before us, and then Dick Erath of Erath Winery. Um, the Blosser family came in about the same time that we established, about a year after us, and then the Campbell family. There were several small families about this time that had had come into um, the Willamette Valley, but um, we were just all just small, little people trying to figure this out, very much grassroots. I always say it kind of went from grassroots to global, you know, in, in less than 50 years. Uh, today there are over, we're close to about 800 wineries in the state of Oregon, um, which is, is pretty phenomenal um, based on where we, where we started and the, the very few resources that we had in those days. And most of those producers are producing Pinot Noir um, all over the valley now. And so in the beginning, so you're thinking it was just a couple dozen? or When my mother and I put together one of the first brochures, um, I think there was a collection of maybe 10 of us. And that was like in 1974, 75. But you, got, you have to understand, we were just making barrels of wine. You know, uh, we had four barrels. and So how did it actually happen? Was was there an influx of just people moving to the area? Were there some other famous wine names that saw potential and then moved there? How do you compare this growth to maybe what happened in Napa in the 70s you know, or so? I find it really curious because many of the early pioneers, and I would say from like yeah, 1965 to 1985, they were just small families that just happened to find each other. I mean, again, these are this is a time without, you know, we, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have cell phones. Um, people just headed west, and I think a lot of it had to do with the kind of restless culture that, that the nation was experiencing at that time, and, and a lot of folks um, with the same mindset of, Let's, let's kind of live off what we would say live off the grid today. And I think they all kind of found themselves on the West Coast, and especially I think outside of the Portland area because, as you said, it was sort of a, it was a very much a free spirit kind of culture out there. And I think there was, a, there was a, 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 a way to start a small business back in those days. 
So we all found each other, and it wasn't really until, and I would say the women together and said, okay, we need to promote the region, and we need to promote the wines of this region. And they started putting together events. And one very notable event is the International Pinot Noir Celebration that happened in 1987, which was the first of its kind where we brought in Pinot Noir producers to a little town of McMinnville in the valley to celebrate the grape. And at the same time, um, it was to learn from these grape producers. And it was really after that event had, had kind of continued for a few years that we started to see the influx of of outsiders come in, Joseph Duran. So we, we started to really see um, some some of these other real notable producers come into the valley. But it took yeah it took over you know ten to fifteen years before uh, we were recognized for promise of this area. Who else was there besides Duran? Well, oh, many of the most famous domains. I mean, we had um, Dijac was there, Favely was there um, in the early days. Um, uh, How did you get them there? Yeah, it was the charm of the Oregon winemaker in those days, you know, um, and so many of us would go back to Burgundy. Um, they saw that the passion. Was learning ground. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're from Oregon, so we're not a threat. Small families, there was a lot of compatibility, I think, with the Burgundians and that we just loved this grape. We were seriously impassioned with the grape itself. It wasn't, we want to make a lot of money or, you know, there was nothing of, of that going on. And so I think because of that, these friendships were formed very early on with these really great domains. And and that opened the door. There were several things that happened in the mid-80s, kind of simultaneously almost. You are hearing Anna Maria Ponzi, the president of and soon-to-be owner of Ponzi Winery in Willamette Valley in Oregon. We were just talking about the explosion and the growth of Oregon Pinot Noirs in the past 25 to 50 years. She is a second-generation family member, and she has witnessed this growth herself, and we were just talking about that. And what do you think some of the challenges really have been in maybe trying to preserve the wines, control the wines? Well, absolutely. There, You know, as we've moved forward, we've seen this, this increase of interest in Pinot Noir, um, not just in the Willamette Valley, of course, but all over the world. Um, so there's certainly um, competition now for a category. So how do we stay true? Precious grape that we always had such um, deep respect for. That is one of our greatest challenges, I think, now. So the, I think what's happened over the course of almost 50 years is almost a division of those quality Pinot Noir producers compared to those who just feel the need for the category because the category of Pinot Noir has become now important um, in the marketplace. And so what do you think about natural wines and garage wines? What do you think of them and then how do you think they affect the market? I don't I don't want to offend anybody. I, fi- I find them experimental wines. I find them to be um, wines that are, are unfinished. I don't really understand them. I mean, I have been raised with a pure focus of quality winemaking and making wines that can be enjoyed at the table with food and with friends and family. Very old world traditional kind of philosophies. So when I see people experimenting with all these different types of wines, and it doesn't make sense for me because wine for me is so special and I feel that it will be short-lived. But time will tell. You know, there's, there's always experimentation going on. And I think that's good. I just, it's a question of what do you want to put on your table is going to give you the most pleasure. And I think for me, it's always been some of the best the best wines from the best producers. When we make our wines, we are making them in a certified sustainable way. And that is a specific 
way of, of growing your grapes and of vinifying your wine. Natural, this term natural has gone all over the place to, to mean lots of different things. But for me, um, we have always been very honest with the grape of Pinot Noir and actually all the other varieties we make. It's such a beautiful little fragile grape. So these are techniques that actually started with my folks and the early pioneers that has really continued through all these, gener- you know, through the second generation. And so we often talk about here on the show biodynamic versus organic, sustainable. What's your differentiation between these, and how do you define your sustainable cert- certificate? Mm-hmm. Well, the certified sustainable in Oregon, there's actually um, an organization that checks us every every year and ensures that we are doing uh, practicing the techniques that we we said that we would be. It's it's called live and it's low input viticulture and enology and it's it's just being practiced in Oregon. I tend to describe our live or our certi- certified sustainable as um, having a little bit more control in the vineyard as you would if, if you were a certified organic winery or vineyard. Um, biodynamic is in my mind just an, an extreme way of, of uh, working with your vines. I I believe that it's more of a religion almost. You know, how is the earth moving? For us, I find it to be sometimes a little bit more risky than I'd want to as a business owner. With your work, you're traveling a lot, learning a lot about the different markets and the American wine consumer, which is evolving in our palate. How do you feel that that is affecting the consumer sustainability and those those characteristics? Yeah, well, I, I definitely believe that overall the um, American culture has awoken to, very much so, to what am I eating, what am I putting in my body, and wanting to know what's in it and where is it coming from. And that is that is great. You know, that's so wonderful. Again, like back in the 70s, we didn't even have ingredient labeling laws. You know, nobody even knew what they were eating. So we've really come a long way with food. I, I think it's, it's fantastic. I think that it kind of goes back to some real basic philosophies, which um, are the philosophies that the original Oregon pioneers had, which was basically plant the right thing in the right place and you will produce beautiful things, right? You know, if you are planting Pinot Noir in a very warm, hot climate, it's probably not going to perform very well. But if you're planting it in a, in a nice, mild temperature in beautiful soils like we have in the Willamette Valley, you're going to produce really beautiful fruit. And so you can retain this natural beauty. And again, I, I think that this is something people are uh, really starting to, to kind of wake up to, is where, is where is that grape being grown and does that make sense? And in order for them to grow it there, what did they have to do to make it happen? Did they have to over-irrigate? Did they have to use pesticides and herbicides to make it happen? So again, it kind of gets back to this, this very natural way of, of looking at, at your, your plant. Yeah, <laughs> really and where it, where, it can th- where it can thrive the best. Where it can thrive, exactly. We, we were just speaking to someone from Alba in Piedmont, and we were talking about why Nebbiolo is so special. And it was because one, of, one of the reasons, which there are probably many, there are many, but one of them is just how well it survives and how well it grows in right. that region. Um, and yeah, it's so I mean, special compared to other places in the world. Truly, and there's just so much to that. And this was this was really the impetus of, of this was what started Oregon, uh, you know, or Pinot Noir in Oregon in the Willamette Valley 
was that idea. Is it the right place for the scrape? And the early pioneers were the ones who said, gosh, it looks like it's doing really great here, you know. We got this right. And then we started to fine-tune it and fine-tune it, you know, started looking into soil, started looking into clonals, started looking into elevations, all those things that start to come once you feel like you're in the right place. How do you? How can you make it even more interesting and, and even better? Oregon is young, as we both can agree, as a winemaking region in, in a global context. Are there other grapes that you think might really excel that mm-hmm. we don't know about? What's on the cusp? What's happening sure. next? Well, um, we, Luisa and I, my sister and I, have been in- incredibly excited by what's happening with Oregon Chardonnay. Um, and I have to really give a lot of credit to Louisa, honestly, um, because she was she's really been a leader of the Oregon Chardonnay movement. She returned um, from working in Burgundy um, to the to the winery back in 1993, and at that time there were clones that had been brought back from Dijon. Um, and these clones planted in the Willamette Valley performed very well. Again, we got we, we finally got it right. It was the right grape in the right place. And so Louisa was able to work um, with a Chardonnay grape very, very uh, similarly to what she saw in Burgundy and Montrachet and Merceau. Whole cluster press, gentle press, and then going into barrel, but French oak barrels, but neutral barrels, not new oak. And so what we're seeing out of, out of Oregon Chardonnay, or I should say Willamette Valley Chardonnay, is this purity of fruit, this really beautiful Chardonnay fruit character that mm. I think um, is very um, almost, yeah, new to the American palate, even though at Ponzi we've been doing this for almost 25 years now. But we are now getting some friends, right? Our colleagues are, have kind of followed suit, and now there's about a handful of, of really fabulous um, producers in the Valley that are making this gorgeous Chardonnay. So I'm hoping that that, that is something that we'll, we'll start to see more of. I certainly find when I'm traveling around, uh, our Chardonnays are the ones that people kind of, you know, are scratching their heads about now. Oh, that's um, exciting. But there, there are other varieties. I mean, um, we've always been producing Pinot Gris. I think it's still a great grape for this region. We um, most recently are moving into sparkling wines. And again, it's one of these things, well, of course you guys should be making sparkling wines, but nobody really went for it. You know, we, we've had producers making sparkling wine in Oregon, very, very hand, you know, handful of, of great producers. But now we're seeing more of that happening, uh, coming out of the valley in really beautiful, um, beautiful styles. Uh, Louisa planted some Nebbiolo um, <laughs> last year. Speaking of, that's funny. She did not tell me she was going to do that, but um, <laughs> she planted a couple acres of Nebbiolo, and I, you know, I can't get too angry because she's probably got that right. So we're we're always, you know, trying new things at Ponzi. We've we've plant we've been working with Dolcetto and Arnaise for many years, and mm-hmm. and we find in these warming vintages, the warmer vintages that we've seen recently, that those are really you know, performing pretty well now. Now, those are varieties that probably would not have done well at all in the 70s and the 80s when we had very cool vintages, but but we've definitely seen a streak of warmer vintages. And so those varieties um, definitely have promise. Well, if you take after your parents, I'm not surprised you're (laughs) trying all different things. (laughs) We tend to do that. (laughs) Well, we're just about to wrap up, but I would love to ask if you have any philosophies about your work. Yeah, you know, I've just been so fortunate to have been a part of the beginnings and to have been able to really watch this evolution of the Oregon wine history. It's been such an amazing trip. Um, And I'm a journalist. You know, that's I I I went to school to to uh, to write and to be able to watch this journey has been and observe it has just been 
it's been thrilling. So that inspires me, the history. I have I am so respectful of our founders and the kind of vision that they had for our region and um, the, the way that everyone collaborated uh, and worked together, and it was all about making great Pinot Noir. So every day I'm inspired by those, the, that, those founders and their philosophies and their beliefs and their values. But more than that, I think as a second-generation uh, vintner in, in this growing region, I have found how exciting it can be um, as a business because you you are you are involved with agriculture, you're involved with production from the winery side and and working with the wines, and then I get to go and present the wines as a as a product, right? As as marketing and as in sales, and hospitality has become um, a greater piece of what we do at Ponzi. So you really um, have this very versatile business in in addition to be to being agriculturally based and really talking to your region. Yeah, there's so many other pieces to it, and I think that it requires um, an individual and many individuals to be very talented at many different things. And every day, I'm just I'm always excited by that, and I just can't wait to keep moving forward and and keep learning. Um, Louisa and I, as you said, we we love to to continue to push the envelope and and see what more we can do. We just submitted for a new sub-AVA, which would be all about soils, because we've been farming the same soils for almost 50 years. We're really confident about what our soils can offer the wines and the expression that the soils are, are giving to the to the wines. So we're looking at that, and we, um, we're planting in, a, in a, a style that has never been done before called clonal masal, which is planting several different clones in a single block, up to 25 different clones and then picking it all at once. Um, these are things that people are kind of looking at us going, I think you're a little crazy. And, uh, and our response is, that's always been a good sign. So we just kind of keep moving forward, and, and we're having a great time doing it together. Isn't that what Marcel Dice does in Alsace? It's, it's common, but has never been done here in the United States to this kind of level. That's great. And um, I think it only comes after... Uh, as I said, working with your land, your your terroir, if you will, for you know several decades, when you can start to really feel confident about that clonal selection and and putting it out there in kind of this random fashion. But I think we'll see more of it as 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 our region you know matures and gets a little bit older. We'll probably see more of this. Awesome. Well, great. I think you have a book ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been I've been observing the book for many years now. So if I could just take time, that would I be know. fun. That's always the hardest part. More than the work itself is finding the time. Well, thanks really. so much, Maria, for speaking today and talking Pleasure. with me today. It was really fun. And uh, I hope to see you on Nantucket very soon. Great. Thank you so much. Thank, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. Tune in every weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 12.35 p.m. Cheers. And I would like to thank my sponsor, Nantucket Culinary. Food is love. Food is learning. Food is fun. Welcome to Nantucket Culinary.